Welcome to another episode of Rad Talk with Tracy. I'm your host, Tracy Poffenroth Prado. This podcast is all about reactive attachment disorder, or RAD. I'm going to be talking with parents who will be sharing their experiences of what it's like raising a child with RAD. It gets raw and it gets real. I'm also going to be talking with experts from different areas who will be sharing information about RAD, resources, and support. I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today, Rad Mom, advocate, and entrepreneur, Amy Van Tyne. This is going to be a two-part show, and today's episode, part one, is all about Amy's personal story of adoption and raising a child with Rad. In part two, Amy will be talking about the organization that she created and founded, which is quickly becoming the leader in support for Rad families. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. So we know each other because we met on more of a professional basis. My husband and I contacted your organization because we needed help. Uh, We have a daughter who has RAD and uh, now we're working together in a few different ways. And I like to think we've also become friends. Yes. I know bits and pieces about your personal story, but I don't think I've ever heard it in its entirety. Just share maybe a little bit about your story, your adoption story, your RAD story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I'm working with families, you know, it's it's more on a professional platform. I don't really want to make it about me in those moments of what my experience has been because I know when I'm working with families, they're in crisis and, um, and I need to help them get through that. So sometimes I'll share bits and pieces if I think it'll be information that will help the parent know that I'm relating to them, but um, but even more so, I was thinking about this this morning. It's sometimes it's kind of difficult because when you share your story, you're pretty vulnerable, and um, and that was a hard place to be when I was parenting a child with RAD. It takes me back to almost kind of some of those trigger feelings of being vulnerable again, and so yeah. So I don't share. I mean, I I do share my personal story sometimes in podcasts and things like that, but I don't share it very often. And, you know, as as many rad parents know, this disorder is so complex. And so there's so much that can go into it. So it's it's, it's definitely interesting to have to go back and think about what is my rad story and what is that journey. For me, when I was a child, I always knew I was going to adopt at a very young age. I mean, I, I have memories of probably being seven years old, sitting in my bed with all my baby dolls, all my stuffed animals, and I just could not wait to be a mom. And I wanted to be a mom however that looked, whether it was a mom to pets, a mom to kids. <laughs> like I just wanted to be a mom. And I knew that I wanted to adopt. So moving forward, you know, I meet my husband, we have um, a biological son, and then we adopted a little boy from birth. And I thought, this is great. You know, we're just, this is what I wanted. I wanted to, to be a mom through adoption and through biologically. And our son through adoption, we ended up having some pretty significant behaviors with early on, even though I got him at birth. um, I will just say real quick, he is not my rad child. 
we got him at birth and by the age of 14 months, I started to recognize that parenting him was a little bit different than my biological son for the ways that simple parenting styles were not working with him, you know, explaining, no, you don't touch the outlets, that's danger, you know, right. sharp knives, you know, don't run out in the street, things like that. He really had a hard time learning those concerning dangerous parenting times that we do with our kids of like, no, don't stick things in the outlet. Right. Long story short, with him, we ended up having pretty significant behaviors early on that lasted all through probably about third grade for him. There were times in our journey where in kindergarten, I was told that he probably was not going to be able to attend school because they could not keep him safe. He was a distraction to the other children. He was having big behaviors. And I felt like, oh my gosh, I have to do everything to help my kid. Like this is kindergarten. What do you mean he can't stay in kindergarten? So that's really, I want to say, when I started to learn that side of me that was uh, a mama bear, able to advocate, able to find the help that I needed for my children. And through a lot of perseverance, I just kept working with him and working with him and working with professionals of let's try this and let's try this and understanding that there's no quick fix for what was going on with his brain but also knowing that as his family, we needed to help him develop those skills with his disabilities to thrive the best that he could. And can I ask you, what were the big behaviors? He wasn't rad, but how would you describe what was happening with him not being rad, but big behaviors? Well, how I will describe it is he he had all the behaviors of a rad child, Um, Actually, at one point, some of the professionals I was working with had told me he was possibly rad. Uh, So he had all the rad symptoms, but now that I've been a rad parent, the difference is, is he had attachment. And I could see that. He had remorse. He had empathy. He had attachment. Okay. So he was attached to you. So that was the difference. That's how you knew he wasn't rad. Right, right. Okay. Well, and I didn't know that back then, you know, because I was still not sure really what RAD was or what it was that we were experiencing. Uh, But like, you know, at three, four years old, he would climb out on the roof of, you know, second story roof in the middle of the night and be walking around on the roof. And we'd get calls from neighbors, you know, are you aware that your toddler's out on the roof? (laughs) No, I'm not. Um, He always had an adrenaline rush, like loved anything that was dangerous, you know, climbing up in the trees, riding motorcycles, just a wild child, full of life, full of laughter and love, but difficult, but difficult. So by the time he was in third grade, we managed to help his brain and his disabilities to calm. And we figured out through a lot of our parenting techniques, what worked, what didn't work, what worked for him. Definitely saying no to him did not work. It was like he did not understand the word no. No meant yes to him. So if I said no, don't run into the street, he would run into the street. (laughs) So we learned really just how to parent differently with him. 
And was that just trial and error? I know you said that you had some therapy and support, but really was that mostly just learning on your own or a bit of both? It was, it was mostly trial and error of um, really back, this was 20 years ago. (laughs) Uh, So back then, well, I guess not quite 20, maybe 18, 17 years ago. Um, But back then, you know, a lot of it was, a lot of what I was being told by the professionals for him was work on, it's your consistency. You know, you have to be consistent. And I remember one time with him at three, you know, the whole thing at three was the number of minutes and timeout of however old he was, whatever, and timeout would start when he could be still. And the poor baby could not be still. He just couldn't even sit still for even a one minute timeout. And I would try to be so consistent and follow through with what the doctors were saying. And like an hour would go by and I'm going, this is ridiculous. After an hour, he doesn't even remember why he's in timeout. Right. It isn't that long. It's like, right. this isn't working. But anyway, when we had gotten to a point where we felt like, okay, we've got this. We really helped this child it was time then to move forward more on my goals. I recognized my kids were starting to get older. And what were some more of my goals in life professionally? And I knew I'd always wanted to be a mom and I was doing that. And we had another son, a biological son. So now I had three boys. And I had always thought of opening a group home. And so not within my own home, but separately, because I, I knew my husband was not on board for doing a group home, but I wanted to do a group home. And I wanted to work with teenage moms, uh, pregnant moms, uh, pregnant teenage girls. So I wanted to work with teenage moms. So to do that, I approached my husband and I said, part of the steps I think we need to do this is I think we also need to do foster care. Mm-hmm. Let's start foster care. So I can get in with the county and start to meet people and see what this looks like opening a group home. And I had worked within the foster care system before I was a mentor and a case aide. And so I had knowledge of foster care. I just, we had never been foster parents. We had been respite providers, but not specific foster parents. So we got licensed uh, to be foster parents. And our first call came in and it was for a seven-year-old girl. And we took this process very seriously. We made it a family discussion. We talked with all the kids that this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna bring a child in our home. And really the requirements from my children, my other children were um, my youngest child wanted to be the oldest. Um, He was tired of being the baby and so you can do foster care and you can bring a little girl in because obviously being a mom of boys, I thought it would be fun to have a little girl in the house. Sure. So my youngest son, he said, as long as I'm the big brother, I just want to be a big brother. And how old was he at that time? So he was seven as well. Okay. Uh, and so when the call came in and she was seven, his response was, I think he, I, So trauma brain, you know, it's a little hard sometimes to think of dates and times. And so I may jump all around of one minute. I may refer to a date and other minute it's going to be like it was based on an incident that was happening and I have no idea what the date was. And you're talking Uh, about your trauma brain, right? My trauma brain, yes. (laughs) Um, And so I'm thinking that she was six months younger 
than okay. him. Well, I mean, I can do the math. Eight, uh, eight months. So he got a little edge up, but not huge. So, yeah. <laughs> and that's all he needed. Is he oh, was good. like, all right, well, that's fine. As long as I'm older and bigger, a couple of months during the year that I'll be older, you know, age wise. So we moved forward with it. And she came into our home and we were all very excited and anxious and just like, let's, let's do this. And within the first week, she started calling us mom and dad. I want to say like maybe day three. And at the time, you know, I'm patting myself on the back going, gosh, we are good at this. We are good parents. Like, look, she's already calling us <clears throat> mom and dad. Right. And I didn't see that as a warning sign. But the one thing I did see as a warning sign is that she was not asking a really about her biological mother. I just want to step in here for a second because our daughter did the same thing, started calling us mom within a week. But you know, what's interesting is uh, the caseworkers, obviously not understanding rad and no fault of their own, but we were actually complimented just like you were complimenting yourself. We were complimented and it was an exciting thing in their mind that our daughter was calling us mom and dad so quickly. So even so quickly. they thought it was great. So yeah. Yes, absolutely. And she started drawing pictures um, of our family and her in it. And same thing, caseworkers, guardian of litem, everybody was like, oh my gosh, she's adjusting so easily to your house so quickly. This is a great fit. We're on it. But I did, it was concerning to me that she wasn't really asking questions about her mom. But in my own head, I played it off as, well, it must be because she's angry for the incidents that led up to her being removed from her mother and rightfully so. So I just validated as she's very angry with her mom and that's, that's why she's not asking. Were you doing visits? Like, was she still doing visits not at this with her time. mom? No, no okay. not at this time. She had just come right in. And so I knew to get her in therapy right away. So we started therapy. I'm explaining to the therapist, it was at our local mental health center that children with Medicaid get to go to. And I'm explaining to her therapist my concern of, can we start tapping into this anger now that she's feeling with her mom? Because the goal is always reunification with her mom. Right. And when that's going to happen, I knew that she needed to work through that anger for it to be a positive thing so she could... Um, then reunify with her mom. And so the therapist said, yes, you know, let's start working on things. But in therapy, my daughter would never open up. And then over time, like time being a couple of months, you know, there was some bedwetting, there was some, some small red flags that I saw, but nothing that I didn't feel like I could handle. I mean, obviously, I had worked in the foster care system, and I knew what to expect. And I didn't think we were going to get, you know, a neurotypical child that didn't have any concerns, a child who comes from loss or trauma, you're going to have behavior. So we were prepared and we just kept helping her. And then it, the times opened up for uh, visits with her mom, that time came. And I would drive her to visits with her mom. But th this is when even more concerns started happening is when she would have visits with her mom, the conversation she would come back and tell me that they had was all very superficial. There just didn't seem to be like a lot of deep connection going on that I expected 
would happen with a mother and daughter that hadn't seen each other for a while. But then I would write it off too also as, well, of course not. They're in a visit that's being supervised and it's only an hour and mom right. maybe feels shamed for her behaviors or, you know, that led up right. to my, our daughter being removed from her home. So I would always just kind of in my own met in my own head work through it and come up with excuses of why it was what it was and then that would also help us uh, determine our parenting style of how we were going to parent her so if you know if if mom's feeling ashamed and she's angry at mom then we were going to parent her of in a way of teaching her her own self-worth and that People make mistakes, but that doesn't mean we're bad people. And uh, we, we would just really work with her on emotions and it's okay to feel um, angry at your mom, but still love her. We would read books on emotions, happy, right. sad, mad, glad. We just worked with her on a lot of emotional things uh, because we did see the other concerning behaviors of her like sexual identity at such a young age feeling like she needed to be very sexual um, wanted to dress very inappropriately uh, for this age was like eight and nine wanting to wear makeup and again it all seemed a little bit more intense than a typical child of that age right and so we just kept pushing more therapy more therapy a year went by with her uh, traditional therapist, the one that we started seeing when she first came. And I'm reporting more and more concerns and more and more behaviors that I'm seeing, lying, stealing, um, the bedwetting, the what now I know is disassociating. But at the time I was not sure what that was. I just thought she's just going numb and can't handle it. And did you get the sense that it wasn't, you were doing all the right parenting things and even more, you'd raised a challenging yeah. son already and you'd been yeah. in the system. Did you kind of feel like, I know that this isn't quite normal for, for regular kiddos, but I don't know what it is either. Did you feel like there's something, but you can't put your finger on it or did you still just feel it was not okay? at this point at this okay. point, I still felt like we were okay. I mean, I felt like, Oh gosh, this is hard. This is hard. Um, but we've got this, we've got this, you know, my marriage was strong. My relationship with my other children was strong. It was definitely difficult and trying, but I didn't feel I hadn't reached the hopeless place yet. Gotcha. And so we just kept searching and searching and, and knowing that, well, just because this is hard now, this may just not be the right fit of therapy for her. And we just need to get through that. So I started advocating right away because her therapist recognized that she wasn't opening up to her. She wasn't developing a connection. They weren't making any progress, but with on the legal side of things, we had to move forward and have documentation because there's still a court case going on and they're looking at reunification. And so my concern was, as they had been talking about reunification and my concern was that she was going to go home and her mother was addicted to methamphetamines and was trying to get clean and stay sober. And, and I wanted to support her mom in those efforts and let her know that I was encouraging her and that I knew she could do it 
And so on my end as a foster parent, I felt my job was to mold her daughter and get her daughter ready for that reunification as well. And part of that was knowing that all this anger my daughter had from the incidents that led up to her being placed in foster care needed to be worked on and talked about. So when you have a child that has trauma and an adult that has trauma, but the adult is now trying to stay sober, how do we reunify them together and expect mom to have the coping skills needed to be able to handle an angry child? Right. Uh, I mean, if she's trying to get off meth and then we're going to place a child back in her home who's very angry at her, that's not going to encourage mom to stay clean. And so wanting to get them both in therapy to talk about the incidents that had taken place so they could begin to heal. So I started advocating right away for different therapies and the therapist suggested uh, EMDR. And of course, that was not something Medicaid didn't cover. So I took it to the guardian litem and took it to the courts and tell the judge, this is what she needs and let's get this paid for and let's set this child up for the best chance success. And that's what I fought for from the beginning, every single time for her. I ask a question about that. Did you know to do that? Did they train you to do that? Did you know all the steps? Nope. That was um, more of just kind of a natural instinct of like, I was talking with the guardian litem and saying, your job is to represent her and this is what she needs and Medicaid's not paying for it. So now you take it to the judge and figure out who's going to pay for it. And so she did, she did. And then, um, so we're seeing an EMDR therapist. We're now doing play therapies, you know, sand therapy, talk therapy. The behaviors are getting worse, which I expected because of course, if you're going to tap into some hard stuff, it may be get harder before it gets better. Right. And then uh, her mother ended up committing suicide. Oh, wow. Unexpectedly, it was not prepared. No, I mean, it was obviously not prepared, but nobody uh, saw it coming. It, the goal was really reunification, and we were so close to, to that that happening. So when her mother took her own life, it kind of set everybody back. We were just like, whoa, what is this? Blindsided. That gives me goosebumps just hearing that. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and of course having empathy for my daughter, it just, it hurt. It was like, oh my gosh, I, I, like, I don't even know what to tell her. Like how, how do we even disclose this information to her? Right. And at this point, she's, again, see, this is where my timing and stuff is scattered in my brain. I'm thinking that she was uh, just turned nine. And so we had been preparing for her to go home. So obviously that changed things. And so we were like, okay, well, now she's open for adoption. And I think that we will do this. I mean, that part of me was like how you know she's just lost her mother and I've been in this role for the last a little over a year. Of course, I mean I yeah we're committed. Yeah, we're committed. We're going to do this. When the the day that we told her that her mother had passed, it was so shocking to me um, because we had our house full of people. You know, legally everybody had to come that was involved in the case to lay eyes on her, you know, report to the judge what was being done. 
And so we had her therapist, her CASA worker, her case worker, my husband, myself. So all of us are here to break the news to her. And in that moment, um, obviously, everybody reacts to death differently in grief. And when she was told that her mother had passed, her comment was, does this mean I get to be adopted now? Huh. And uh, so my husband and I said, yeah, that's, that's what this means. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, she's just needing to know that she's safe. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're, we're not going anywhere. We're here for you. And then her next comment was, so I get to go ride motorcycles then? Because when she was, we, we ride motorcycles in our family. And when she was a foster child, she was not allowed to ride motorcycles. And so she's thinking, great, I can be adopted now. I can ride motorcycles. But it was so odd to me that there was not more grief coming out. It was just right. matter of fact, like I get to be adopted and now I get to ride motorcycles. You didn't see any real emotion behind it. No, no real emotion at all. And I thought, well, maybe that's because her guard is up. There's caseworkers here. There's everybody here. And maybe once they leave our home and everybody left, of course, it was an emotional draining day. So I crawled in bed and she did come crawl in bed with me and started asking me some questions. Well, of course, when I found out that her mother had died, my first instinct was to contact um, a grief counselor. And so I had contacted a grief counseling center and their advice that they gave me was to answer all of her questions honestly, not to make up any stories or to withhold anything because then the child can create their own idea of what happened, why their parent passed away and it, and it could lead to more con concerns. So when she crawled in my bed and she started asking me questions, how did she die? That was really difficult because, and, and I'm not going to share here because um, that's her story and I really want to respect her, but it was a really horrific thing mm. to have to talk to a nine-year-old about. Oh, I can't even imagine. Yeah, but even then she, um, it was more just facts. It wasn't... Um, there really wasn't a lot of emotional stuff. It was, uh, her, her question was more, how do you know she's really dead? Ah, okay. Like, how, how do we really know? So immediately we started, well, not immediately, they required a six-week wait period to start griefing counseling um, because they wanted that six weeks for kind of the shock and stuff to settle down. And so we, we started this incredible or a counseling center that they were amazing where they actually placed us with other families that was going through grief through this, the same. So the group that we were with were all people that lost their loved ones to suicide and they split up the, the, the supporters and the children. So being her support, being her foster parents, we were with other adults and then all the kids were together in a separate room where they got to work with other kids on their grief. And again, they were with kids who lost their loved one to suicide. Right. So it was the same. So an amazing program. And we did that program uh, three sessions. So most families go once and, okay. and we're done. And we went, 
not so when I say sessions, they were weekly sessions and it was like a 12 week program or something. And we did the program three times. So three uh, 12 week. So, yeah, long, long periods. And I'm not sure if it was 12 weeks, but it was long. And we kept doing it because we kept having the behaviors and kept thinking this isn't working and this is grief. And so meanwhile, you know, we're doing EMDR and we're doing grief counseling and we're doing individual counseling and, and it just was not getting better. It was getting worse and worse, but through it, I noticed I was declining. Interesting. My own self, I felt exhausted all the time. I felt a little depressed and I kept thinking, well, it's just because we have a lot going on right now. You know, it's, it's a lot. Right. You know, we're going to work towards adoption. We're going through grief. We have our other boys that at this point started showing uh, some behaviors themselves, which with my youngest son, a lot of it, I thought, oh my gosh, he's grieving the loss of her mom too, because they are so close in age. I thought that his behaviors were... Um, that, that, uh, my brain, I just had a brain. Well, just that they Uh, were similar. He could relate to her and connect and kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Like the secondary trauma type stuff where he was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, he he was young, he's nine and he thinks, gosh, your parents can die. Like I never knew that. And And you know, I'm going to interrupt you just for a sec because being the listener to all of this, um, I think sometimes, well, I can just see how you would be exhausted because A, you know, you've got all these kids coming into your life. You had a challenging kid and then you're constantly working to make things better, to be a better parent. So just in listening to you so far, it's just constant. Every day. I'm tired. Exactly. You're tired. Because, yeah. you know, and you're saying it just like, oh, and this is what we did. And oh, this is what we did. But most parents don't have to do all of that. And you're constantly doing it and taking it on and being proactive. And, you know, we're talking about foster care. We're talking about seeking out therapy. We're talking about dealing with school behaviors and probably phone calls pretty frequently and starting in oh, kindergarten. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So IEPs, the fact that all kinds of Right. Stuff. Yeah. So the fact that yeah. you're saying you're exhausted, exactly. I'm tired already and thinking, well, of course you are, <laughs> but right. you still have to keep going. Yeah. Well, and the piece underneath that exhaustion was knowing, though, I have to keep going because this isn't going to get better until we find answers. Right. And so part of that determination was, was I could see that our family was in crisis Mm -hmm. where I, you know, I'm going, my, uh, you know, my daughter is what we thought was struggling with grief and a lot of her early trauma, which she was. And now my youngest son is struggling thinking I'm going to die. My middle son is struggling because him being adopted and then her going to be adopted, they started butting heads of what, and and so again, this is all hindsight of what I thought was at that time, I, what I thought was more of a sibling rivalry of, I was adopted first, no, you know, just both of them being adopted from different situations, but they would fight like crazy. And then I had an older teenage son that was just isolating all the time to his room. And so I'm trying to 
keep everybody's lives flowing as smooth as possible, but recognizing if I just keep finding help for her and I can get her to calm and regulate, then my stress level will calm and I'll feel like my family can function because it just felt right. like it was every family has hiccups. Everybody has hard times in their life. And that's what I just thought we were going through, right. except for it happened to be like a year and a half of a hard time. Right. And uh, so I just kept seeking more and more help. And maybe this therapist isn't a good fit. And then, you know, we found out she loved horses. So let's do equine therapy. So we started an equine therapy program. But the more that I sought help out for her, and the more I was putting into place the therapeutic strategies in parenting that we were given, the more hopeless it began mm. to become. It was no longer hard. It was no longer, we'll get through this. I just need to find the right avenue, the right professional, the right fit, the newest therapeutic. Right thing that's being developed out there. I just need to access it and we're going to be okay. And you know, you said something really profound that might be missed, but what I heard was if I just keep focusing on her. So yes. that is, I think, very important because that's what happens is all the focus yes. because you we think that we just need to help this child. They're a child coming from trauma. So anybody's heart goes out. You don't want to traumatize them more. You see their needs, right? but all the focus without really recognizing what's happening around, it's just focusing on that rad kid. Absolutely. Because the, my mindset was that if I can get her stabilized and okay, then the rest of us are going to be okay. Right. And, and you, as a parent, you have to put out the biggest fire mm -hmm. and her behaviors were the biggest fire. Um, it became really unsafe in our house, asking her to do anything, a, a simple parenting command of, can you please pick up your shoes would turn into a three, four hour meltdown. Right. Uh, it would start with shoes flying and hitting me. And then of course, as a parent, you know, you don't, you can't throw shoes. That's not the appropriate way, you know, whatever parenting style we would try, because we would mix it up constantly trying to find anything that was effective to parent her with a simple parenting command. Right. And at the same time, you know, you're experiencing all of these behaviors and scary stuff and yet still having to feel like you have to stuff down your feelings and be yeah. that parent and do the right yeah. thing and keep your composure and parent correctly. Yep. Yep. And meanwhile, I'm also in therapy at this time. <laughs> so I had somebody to talk to. And how old is your daughter at this time when this is all starting to happen? She's probably about nine and a half. Okay. So young. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other piece of it is I, I started having thoughts of like, well, it, it's my parenting. What am I doing wrong? And, and that's kind of an, another piece of some of the therapeutic modalities that are, that are out there is, you know, you have to address your early trauma because otherwise that carries over into our parenting techniques and stuff like that. So I thought, okay, if that's what I have to do, then let I will continue to work on myself to save my family, 
So simultaneously, while she's doing her work, or I'm trying to lead her to people that can help her do her work, because that was the problem. Wherever we went, she was not doing her work. There, she, she wouldn't do the work. So I'm doing my own work, but I'm also starting to question, is this me? Is this me? Is what I'm seeing in her behaviors, is this me? Is it something I'm doing? What is wrong with me? And there was one moment in particular that um, I get chills thinking about now, but I remember her sitting on the couch reading with my husband. My husband loves to read and he's sitting on the couch and he's got his book and he's reading and, you know, part of the connected parenting and stuff we were trying was kind of like that Velcro parenting and having her with us. And so I'm cleaning the kitchen and my husband has her right next to him on the couch and he's reading and she's got a book and she's reading and he's, you know, snuggling her and um, I'm cleaning and I look over and she looks up at me and gives me this look that, um, it's hard to describe. I describe it as being in high school again, having a crush on a boy, and that nasty catty girl that you do not like knows that you like this boy, and she's talking to the boy, and then she would give you that look of like, nah, 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 nah. look who's got him. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly the look I got, was like, he is mine. Look what I, I have. Look. I know that look. And it freaked me out mm-hmm. on so many different levels because so I thought, levels. what the heck is wrong with me? Like, first of all, she's my daughter. Mm-hmm. Second of all, you know, at this point, I don't even know. I can't remember her age, nine, 10, like, and ooh, why would I feel that way? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't perceive it as something coming from her. I thought it was me. Yes. Um, so I was like, am I jealous? Am I jealous over my daughter? Maybe all of this is my fault. Maybe having all boys and bringing a girl into the house, maybe I wasn't ready to, to have a girl in the house. And so I start doing more therapeutic work of like, am I jealous? But when it came down to it, I didn't feel jealous. Like it was, it was the weirdest thing to try to explain but it was a gut feeling. That's the only yeah. thing I can say is just, it was this gut feeling of like, Ooh, that something is not right. And when I would approach my husband about it, he didn't see it. Right. And so then he's going, well, no, like, I think it's good that she was wanting to sit next to me and cuddle with me. And isn't that what we're working on is like attachment and bonding with her. Like right. what's wrong with that? So then I felt even more crazy going, you're right. Because logically in my head, I'm like, yes, you're right. But in my gut, it was telling me like this, something is wrong, right? Yeah. Yes. And this you can already see now is starting to spiral on so many levels, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yep. (laughs) And, And from there, it just kept happening. Um, she would not, she would not do anything that I would ask her to do. She got to the point where she wouldn't do anything my husband asked her to do. She 
we, you know, we have little chores and stuff for our kids to do. And we would ask our kids to go pull a bucket of weeds, you know, it'd be summertime, go pull a bucket of weeds. And then we'll all go off and do something fun. Let's get our chores done. And she would refuse. She would sabotage anything and everything she could think of. If we had a family outing planned, she would sabotage it. If she had something fun planned with her friend, she would self-sabotage it for herself. And how would she sabotage? What did that look like? Oh, well, as things got real serious, here's another story. So my son played football, my youngest son, and we would go to his football games and we would watch football and watch him play. And it was a big family ordeal. And after the football games, if we won, we'd go out with our football family and we would celebrate, you know, and go to a pizza place or whatever and, and just have a good time. Right. Well, she knew due to her behaviors, you know, she would call me obscenities all the time. You know, you piece of S and effing B and all this stuff. And so our rule as a parent was, you know, if you're going to talk to us that way, I'm sorry, you don't get to participate and then get to go be a part of the family outing and have pizza. So she would still go with us and we would order for her and, you know, she would get pizza, but maybe not the soda. I mean, obviously we were going to feed her, but, you know, just in the car right here, you're cursing at me. You know, no, you don't get to get, get rewarded with the way you treated me. So what she started doing then is she would self-sabotage that where she couldn't, um, well, not self-sabotage, but sabotage it for everybody else. She was allergic to sunflower seeds and she would find sunflower seeds at the football field laying in the grass, however, and she would hide them or she would take them. And then in the car on the way to go eat, she would eat sunflower seeds. And then we would look over and she'd be having a whole anaphylactic reaction. And so what would that do? But then now we can't go out to eat with the football family. We've got to go to the emergency room. We need to find an EpiPen. We need to take care of her. Focus on her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it became that all the time, whether it was football, whether it was birthday parties, whether it was just a simple, we want to go for a hike or something as a family. Um, You know, she wouldn't get her shoes on. She wouldn't get in the car. She would refuse to get out of the car. Um, The car became a very dangerous place for us all to be. School rides, rides to school. She would be so violent and just start raging. And it could be something as simple as that morning, you know, I asked her to get a sweater or something Mm -hmm. and we would get in the car and she would say, I don't have my sweater. And I would say, okay, well then I'll go get it. And then I grabbed the wrong sweater. And before you know it, she would be headbanging, slamming her fist on the, the glass, kicking the seat in front of her. So I'm watching my other children's heads, you know, go flying around because she's violently kicking, um, punching the seat next to her. And there's like this much space between her and my other child. We would pull over and do the whole, you know, I'm sorry, you seem angry. Let's pick a coping skill. How can we help you get through this? Or maybe you need to get out of the car. Let's throw rocks. Let's punch the ground. Let's do jumping jacks. How do we get this energy out? to where we can get back in the car and drive safely to school. 
and it just wouldn't happen. It got to the point with the school that I had to coordinate with them that um, my other children would not get tardies because a 15, 20 minute car ride was turning into an hour to an hour right. and 10 minutes. Right. And we did that for a while. Tell me about, let's fast forward a little bit and tell me about the, when it got to be its worst, if you're comfortable and then what okay. is where you're at now. Sure. So when it got to be its worst is these behaviors escalated over and over. Um, I went to multiple different professionals. I need help. I need help. She needs help. Our family needs help. And I started recognizing nobody knew how to help us. Uh, they weren't seeing those behaviors. They believed me. People well, believed that's good. me. Um, but they didn't know how to help. They, they didn't know what else to put in place. Uh, we all agreed that she needed some sort of residential care, something more than I could give. She was not safe in our home. She was raging just beyond hours, holes in walls, climbing out on the roof, threatening me with shovels, couldn't handle car rides. It was just, it was violent all the time. We lived in complete violence from the moment we said good morning until the moment we said good night and she would rage for hours until she would finally fall asleep. And how did that feel living in that from morning to night? How did that Ooh. feel? Um, I don't know because I quit feeling. Hmm. I just had to shut down. I had to keep my family safe and I had to do whatever it was. So for my own personal feelings, I don't even know. I just blocked it all out. I had to shut it all down to keep my family surviving. And self-protect. My other children were raising themselves because we were always dealing with her and her rages. Essentially, it got to the point where I just, I knew we were in such crisis. And when I would reach out and we were trying to get her to residential treatment, and when I kept being told she doesn't meet medical necessity, like I can even feel like the bricks on my chest now talking about this, of that feeling. It is that feeling of when you are seeking help and it's hopeless when people tell you they don't know. Right. Um, it's one thing with like my first adopted son that I was sharing, it was hard, but I would go to people and we could find help. And if, as long as I had the skills to locate the next person or the next person, I knew there was help. And, and it you was, saw progress. And I saw progress. And I knew it was hard, but I knew there was help out there. And in this scenario, it didn't matter who I reached out to. It was, sorry, it was crickets. Nobody knew what to do. And the more I said, we're going to die. Somebody is going to die like my gut instinct felt that and knew that. And it was, sorry, I don't know what to tell you. So you're stuck at home living with violence, morning to and night, no way terrified out. and no way out. And no way out. There were um, nights where I'd wake up and she'd be standing at the end of my bed, staring at me. There were uh, 
times in the car where she was physically grabbing me from behind and I would be trying to pull over um, because she would have a handful of my hair as I'm trying to drive and my other children are witnessing this. And uh, eventually what happened is um, I ended up having a breakdown. I ended up having a nervous breakdown. I don't remember a lot of the breakdown because that was part of it. My mind completely shut off. Um, I couldn't remember names. I couldn't remember where I was. I couldn't remember my schedule. I couldn't remember what I had to do. The parts I do remember of my breakdown is it was not pretty. Um, we were in the car. I had my children in the car and I lost it. I lost my ever-loving mind. Um, screaming and yelling and saying things to my children that I never even thought imaginable. And, uh, and I, I got my old or my middle son, um, I got him to school and then I had my two younger, I had my daughter and my son and I was trying to get them to school and, um, I was using my coping skills. I get out of the car, I'm screaming and yelling. I can't do this. Help me. You know, I'm, I'm doing everything that I can think of to try to regulate myself. And I'm just losing it. I'm crying. I'm screaming. And um, I'm like, I got to get my kids to school. I'm like five minutes away. I just got to drop them off and then I'll figure this out. Right. Like I'm, I've got to come up with a plan. I'll, I'll figure out how I'm going to keep everybody safe. And I get back in the car and I look over and my son is crying. Oh, jeez. And he says, mom, you're scaring me. And I look over at my daughter and she's smiling. And I knew, I knew I couldn't do it. No, um, no, no. So I took her to school and I dropped her off and I took my son home and I left him. And that's the last thing I remember. I dropped him off at the house. And I left and uh, luckily he called my husband and my husband called my best friend and they found me and uh, I have, you know, some significant time of no memory um, of what happened from there. Essentially my body could not take any more. I couldn't take any more of that complex stress. I couldn't no. take any more of the hopelessness. And the so from fear, there, the terror, everything, oh, everything, yeah. everything, and um, so from there, we we had um, some friends that offered to do respite for her, and and they were foster parents, and and they had experience with Rad, and and so they took her. How lucky is that, that you even had anybody remotely? Oh, a blessing. That... Like, I can't even, well, and, and prior to that, you know, we were more just acquaintances, um, but something led me to reach out to her to say, I need a break. I, I had plenty of people offer respite, and we did take our respite breaks, but with this, I shared with her of my breakdown, and, and she said, you need to get back home, and I said, I can't go back home to her anymore. I can't parent her. I can't be in this role. I can't do this. And, um, and so she took her and had her 
she said I could keep her a couple of weeks. And one of the shocking things is um, my youngest son had told me that at school, because they were still going to school, you know, obviously why I was in my yeah. <laughs> my breakdown. Uh, my husband is an amazing dad and took everything over and kept everything ro- rolling. Thank God. And my Thank son God. had told me, my youngest son had told me that at school, she was chanting on the playground that she got rid of her mom. I got rid of my mom. I got rid of my mom. And, and it broke his heart. And he was terrified because he didn't know what was going on with me. He didn't know if I was going to come home. He didn't, he didn't know. He didn't know if he was going to lose his mom. Yeah. And she was boasting about it, that she had won. And that's when my eyes were completely open of like, holy smokes, that was her goal all along. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Due to her disorder, she had to get rid of me. Exactly. She had to get rid of me at whatever cost. Um, and I know we don't have much time, but so from there, um, I started calling social services on herself and just letting them know that um, we couldn't do this, that she could not return to my home and that I needed to, to find treatment for her and we needed help. And so essentially we forced social services to get involved. It took over a dozen phone calls of reporting. A question for you, because I know a lot of listeners are probably wondering, why did it take so many phone calls? I mean, this seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Why so many phone calls? Yeah, because every time I called, they said, well, you have a roof over your head. You have supports. You have food in your kitchen. You're not an abusive parent. Um, We weren't considered abusive parents. At this point, our adoption had only been finalized almost a year. We weren't even a year into our adoption. So for our first year anniversary of the adoption day, she wasn't in our home. She was out of home. And we began to to do the fight with Child Protective Services of getting the care that she needs. Um, We were able to secure funding for her to go to the Institute for Attachment and Child Development of where we were so very hopeful that with a rad specific program that she would be able to return to our home and that um, that we we would all learn what we needed to thrive as a family. And sadly, that was not the case. So despite your breakdown, you are still fighting yep. and having to work and constantly yep. figure things yes, out I, on yes. your own. Except Except for at this point, she wasn't in my home. And, right. and just that, just even not having her in my home opened up my eyes to so much of what was going on. I was still in contact with her. Was, we were still visiting her at our friend's house for respite and dinner. And every day I spent on the phone looking for rad specific therapy, somebody that could help her, could help our family. And but when she wasn't in our home, I saw that the damage was even bigger. It's kind of like when you put out that fire and then you don't know what damage has been done. And um, I had put out the fire as far as um, having her placed outside of our home so I could be safe and she could be safer. Um, but then when I started looking at the damage with my other children and my marriage and myself, 
from my breakdown and what I needed to overcome and heal, I couldn't even figure out when it all went south. Looking back, going, no. when did it yeah. go wrong? Where, when did it become this point? I, I, I still can't even identify. Um, the disorder had just come in and taken over. And I don't know when or how, or next thing I know, we were just in crisis. And it's so insidious like that. And I think because as a rad parent, you're always in survival, coping, fixing mode. Absolutely. Day to day that there is no time or ability to feel or think of anything else or to see right. anything else until, like you say, the child's out of your home and then you can step back and actually see because when you're in it, you're surviving. In it. There's nothing else. We were right? just surviving. Absolutely. Just surviving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so where are you guys at today? What, so what is life like and what? Yeah. Happening? So when she was at the Institute for Attachment and Child Development, I started to really, it, it became so clear to me how this disorder works. It was literally like my eyes opened of like, oh my gosh, this is this, this is this. And I really saw how I triggered her as a mother figured. I triggered her as an advocate. I triggered her because I was expecting connection and intimacy. And the, when I, what I could identify is the more we tried to help her, the sicker she got. So talk about that a little more about from a rad perspective and reactive attachment, what is that? really mean you're touching on something really important yeah here. so from her disorder standpoint the more i was working with her on her self-love her her well-being um her place within our family our love our desire to have her as a daughter the lifelong commitment of we are always going to be here for you the sicker she got because that is what she was reacting to. Her brain never developed to receive attachment and connection. And she didn't have a felt sense of safety in our house to work on that. And so essentially by me loving her and rocking her and nurturing her and taking her to all these therapies and trying to show her that we were never going to give up on her and I was being so consistent and it triggered her brain that flight fight or freeze was just going berserk because she didn't feel safe to receive that and I, I could recognize that when she was out of our home and she was in a rad specific treatment facility it, it was like yes this is it and, and then the moment for us came when um, my children had all been sick. They had all had the flu. And so I thought I'll deep clean the house. And I'm deep cleaning the house and I go to strip my bed and wash all my bedding. And I change my sheets often, but not the mattress pad. And so I took off the mattress pad to wash that too. And I ended up finding stab marks on my side of the bed. Um, there was, and I can't remember now, 20 some odd stab marks oh my on my side of the bed. And it really just jolted me because here she was still at a residential treatment center and I was still 
fighting and pushing to save our relationship and to bring her back into our home. And I realized that it was my love and my nurturing that was causing her to act homicidal. And can I say just how terrifying, just even listening to that experience is? I cannot imagine. Um, it was so terrifying. Um, because again, the other terrifying piece of it was not knowing when she got into my room, how did she have access to a knife? Um, because again, we had put safeguards. Yeah, we had put safeguards in place so she wouldn't self-harm. I mean, when she was headbanging and self-harming, you know, we put all kinds of safeguards into place. So, and even more concerning is when did it happen? And, and that means that a, a young child unmade my bed because it, there wasn't stab marks through my sheets or blankets because I would have seen that. But more so than the act of her stabbing my bed. I mean, I know that's a very scary thing and uh, maybe it's just the time that I've had to process it and, and heal that feeling. Um, but now I view it very differently. I mean, of course, the day that I found it, I thought, oh my gosh, she really wanted me dead and she's, she wanted to kill me. Um, but now I can view it as how sad that she reached a point within her disorder that she had to strategize how she was going to get rid of me so she felt safe. And that's when uh, my husband and I sat down and we made the decision um, that she could never come back home and that we had to set her free, you know, kind of like that, that adage, if you love something, you set it free and, and recognizing for us and for our family and for everybody's safety, she couldn't come home. And so we moved forward with um, child protective services of relinquishing um, our parental rights. Gotcha. And so sadly, we did that. She was in our home. Let's see. I see this is the years. I don't even know how many years we did it, but um, she came in our home at seven. And by the time she was 13, our adoption was dissolved. I think it's pretty remarkable that you were able to get to a point after listening to your story to be able to empathize with your daughter's situation and about taking that situation with stabbing your spot in the bed and turning around to see it from her perspective and feel for her after all of this, I think is remarkable. And I think it speaks to rad parents, you know, listening to the story, um, you know, my mind was wondering, gosh, are we just really good at coping and, you know, minimizing things to keep going and keep pushing forward and helping because, you know, sometimes when I explain this to a friend of mine, um, you know, one of these events would send her just running or to seek help. And it's different because these kids come through adoption. It's different because like you say, um, the supports aren't out there and um, you're left to have no other choice except to cope. Maybe that's why we do it. Right. I don't know. But well, and I also think we do it because there are children. And right. I mean, what, what do us mothers say? Absolutely. We would do anything for our children, anything. And, um, and sadly for myself is I was willing to do anything until I realized um, I'm not, I'm not safe in my own headspace right now. I can't even function 
that's not safe for my kids. And so um, for me, it was kind of a light bulb moment of, you know, you got to put your oxygen mask on before you assist your child. I never <laughs> could understand that when I fly. I used to say, are you crazy? No, I, of course I would put my child's oxygen on first. Um, but that's really kind of what Rad taught me is, whoa, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty, I don't know if the word is stubborn or determined or whatever you want to call it, but I was a mama bear and I was going to save my daughter at, at all costs and help at her heal. At all costs. And that all costs came down to almost the last of my life. Um, and recognizing that I, I couldn't sacrifice myself. My other children needed me as well. And I just think about too how fortunate you were to be a the person you are with the resources that you even had for yourself a strong marriage um, a strong family life and commitment to family and understanding you know I know that you said that you had a lot of people that they couldn't help you but they at least understood and I think even you had the strongest um, family and community and skill set and knowledge and it even took you down yes. and your family down. Yes. And so, and it does affect marriages. It does affect mm -hmm. families, no matter how strong. So I always think about these other families and I know we'll talk about it when we talk about the organization that you founded and are pioneering uh, in part two of this, but um, you know, just recognizing that a lot of families are in areas where there isn't that support or there's less of an understanding and they are judged or maybe they don't have as strong of a foundation in their life, whether it's family or marriage. And so, you know, it even takes the strongest down. It's, uh, it's hard to think about other families like that. It's a devastating disorder for sure. For sure. And is there anything else that I didn't ask or know to ask that you want to share anything about rad or debunking a myth? I know next session, we're going to lead in and talk about what led you to become an entrepreneur and create a support system for families. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know at this time. <laughs> I'm like, um, <laughs> You know, even talking about it, it's interesting because it, it still, it still triggers. I mean, after you go through something like this, it's life altering uh, for the rest of our lives. I mean, it, and I know with talking with other rad moms, sometimes we joke around of like, oh yeah, I'm so not the same person I used to be before. Or, um, But even when I have to talk and share my story, I get physically and emotionally exhausted. And so when you're asking me questions now of anything else, I'm kind of like <laughs> a deer in headlights going, uh, honestly, I don't know. I mean, it, it, but that's reflective of this disorder. I mean, it, it takes a toll. It takes a toll for sure. Is there one thing you can think of not to put you on the spot, especially after you telling me <laughs> your, your brain has closed up shop. Um, is there anything that you would tell rad parents that are listening or experts or any, you know, nugget of wisdom, something that you learned, maybe a ray of hope and don't feel like you have yeah. to. 
but I just oh, wonder if anything. Yeah, absolutely. Me. I mean, the main thing, kind of my mantra now is nobody can heal without a felt sense of safety. Nobody. And that's each individual's felt sense of safety. We know that these children, like we knew our daughter was safe in our house. We knew our house was safe. We're safe people, but she didn't feel safe. And then it got to the point where I didn't feel safe. My other children didn't feel safe. And so healing was not going to occur in our house because we did not all have an each individual felt sense of safety. And without that felt sense of safety, nobody's going to heal. Nobody. And do you think you could have gotten that sooner or how would you get that? How? Yeah, I think the disorder had taken over at some point. And I mean, I think I constantly think back and think, well, when would that a defining moment would have been where if we would have had the right therapist in that moment, or if we would have had this and, and it's really hard to look back in the woulda, shoulda, coulda's, but the reality is, is with our daughter, I don't think she ever had a felt sense of safety in our home. Right. As you know, the disorder comes in and, and she liked it at first because it was all services and goods, right? You know, let's do your room and let's do a great birthday party for you. And, but when it became about connection and intimacy and, uh, and being a part of a family, she couldn't handle that. That didn't feel safe for her. And you know, something that you said to me that's always stuck because it, I resonated with it so much is that kind of two things. Home is the trigger. And so being at home in that loving family, home connection is what triggers them. And when they're in it, when they're in that home around that family, survival kicks in and they will do anything, yeah. anything to get out. And that's that. what I'm saying. Anything to where she put, you know, over 20 stab marks in my mattress for her self-survival. Right. right. Like, um, and so instead of me constantly trying to course her to accept our love and relationship, I had to release her to say, you don't, you don't have to accept this from us because she was willing to. How old is your daughter now and how long has she been away and what is life for you, like for you in this moment? <laughs> okay, so now she is 15. Uh, so she's been out of our home since uh, 11 and a half, 12-ish. And um, to say that everything is great would not, uh, it's it, like I said, you don't just overcome rad. It's been a long journey of healing and we have a long way to go, mm -hmm. but we're getting there. We're getting there. And that's right. where we are now. Um, doing rad advocates has been very healing for me that, I mean, that just, that's my purpose in the pain. Now you're channeling all that into this organization yes. that you're creating. Yes. And uh, just working on to repair the damage that has happened with my other children and working on that is an ongoing process, working on myself every day, uh, making sure that I'm taking good self-care and doing my checks and balances of where am I at in my own well-being, uh, working on my marriage still, repairing the pieces of that that got destroyed 
And, um, and that's just really, really it. But we're, we will never be the same. We will never be the same as pre-rad. We are post-rad and um, we are now trying to develop and create ourselves of who we are now. Right. And heal in whatever way you can. Well, I'm so grateful that you shared your story. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the next part, part two, where we talk about, uh, like you say, the positive spin on this, if you can even say right. that, <laughs> but how you're channeling all of that stress and experience into something more positive yeah. and to help other families. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And same to you. I'm so glad that you're doing these podcasts. I think that for parents, uh, to have an outlet of even just to share their story and somebody's listening, I think is going to be huge for families. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, I really believe that it will create change. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.